Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Sean Malloy, who is reader in international relations at the University of Kent, about his new book, Kant's International Relations, The Political Theology of Perpetual Peace. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Dave. Um, so this is an incredibly fascinating book um, about not just actually kind of international relations uh, theory, but um, a really detailed engagement with Kant, which has lots of different implications uh, far and beyond politics and IR. But I suppose the kind of the, the place to start with it is, is really what kind of um, interested you or, or, or what kind of, you know, gave you the sort of uh, desire to write uh, this book? Where, where does it fit in with your sort of broader intellectual uh, activities? I started the book uh, out of curiosity because I'd read a little bit about Kant years ago when I was doing my master's and PhD in international relations. And it was a very established set of principles about how you read Kant in terms of democratic peace theory, cosmopolitanism, etc. And I began to read Toward Perpetual Peace more carefully uh, around about 2006 and I started to notice and this is something I noticed before but it really started to get my attention around about then that Kant kept making these peculiar references to providence and other religious concepts and theological concepts and metaphysical concepts and ideas in his political works uh, and this was something that was very rarely, if ever, addressed in IR literature. Why is he constantly invoking providence? Insofar as it was ever dealt with, it was dealt with in terms of, oh, well, he just means this in, 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 in either uh, synonymous with the, the nature or synonymous with um, some kind of idea that isn't to be taken literally or seriously. And I began thinking, well, hold on, these concepts and ideas, particularly ideas, are used to shore up an awful lot of problematic 
elements, uh, at least problematic from our contemporary perspective, elements of Kant's project. Uh, so I thought, I think this needs a bit more investigation than had been dedicated to, or, to it at that point. That's what got me started. You mentioned actually two really important um, ideas that will, I guess, kind of introduce the book, but also show its importance specifically for, for international uh, relations theorists, but also actually at the same time, um, draw in a wider audience, I think. And these are ideas about cosmopolitanism and then democratic peace theory. Um, you mentioned them already, and I wonder if you could kind of like unpack them a bit for me, just in terms of, of setting out what they are, because obviously um, Kant is, is really crucial, particularly, this is the stuff I know kind of you know better, particularly to ideas about cosmopolitanism. But in turn, those two sets of ideas are really important for international relations. Yeah, they're kind of key aspects of sort of liberal approaches to international politics over the last 20, 30 years. Um, The first democratic peace theory is this principle that democratic states generally will not fight wars with each other, uh, which has been elevated to a sort of rule of international relations. There's no instance um, that democratic peace theorists uh, claim of uh, democracies fighting each other. They'll fight other states, non-democratic states, and they'll fight colonial wars, but they will generally, the general rule according to democratic peace theory is that democracies will not fight each other, uh, which at least has the advantage or or positive element of, of clarity, whereas cosmopolitanism is a much more amorphous set of ideas uh, revolving around the idea of world citizenship um, and the idea that we exist in a global political space and we should think in global political terms. And they see in Kant, both sets of theorists see in Kant a sort of intellectual forefather and source almost of legitimacy. And they find in Toward Perpetual Peace this idea that democracies, as far as they're concerned, are inherently peaceful uh, in their relations with each other. The final thing, I think, um, in terms of both our cosmopolitanism and democratic peace uh, theory ideas is, is, I guess, that thing you mentioned about, if not misreadings, but people kind of, you know, possibly ignoring things Kant has, has actually mm-hmm. said. Um, and, and one really obvious way um, to, to kind of set that up is this question about um, the text themselves. Yep. Um, so you mentioned Towards Perpetual Peace, um, and there's a couple of other kind of key texts as well. But I wonder if you could kind of introduce that text um, for the audience, because um, obviously it, it's crucial. And it strikes me throughout the book, even as you expand into various other things Kant has written, that what is in the text is, is really, you know, important to your to your project in um, in this book. Yeah, well, it's a, a pamphlet, a small book he wrote first in 1795 and then slightly revised it in 1796. And what he's trying to do there, I establish or try to establish, is really bring to a head all his writing about politics, morality, ethics, etc., into one final setting, which is designed to address, A, the preconditions for peace, 
So that's the, the preliminary articles. How do we get to a point in principle where peace is possible? And then in the definitive articles, which he examines in the, in the second part of the, the um, pamphlet, what that peace would look like, how that peace would be maintained, what kind of political structures are necessary. Uh, so what he's trying to do is saying, well, okay, how do we think forwards from where we are or where we appear to be in terms of our political condition, which is based in conflict and war, to a point where we can legislate uh, a peaceful solution to international politics. And it's a very fascinating exercise because it really accepts an awful lot of uh, negative aspects of human anthropology, which he has explored uh, for the previous 40 years in his lectures, uh, but also brings in this idea of teleology bring, uh, or the, you know, how do we get to the end point that we want to achieve? And what he tries to do is he tries to marry nature, human nature, and human reason to accomplish this end. But the intriguing thing for me is he insists in a later part of the pamphlet that this has to be underwritten by belief in providence. Human ingenuity and the mechanism of nature will produce a form of peace, but not the definitive form of peace that he's looking for. So he has this idea that we have to underpin this with a belief in something greater than mankind, something greater than nature, which he finds in the idea of providence, this idea that nature isn't simply a mechanism, but that there is a purpose behind nature. And that purpose is um, basically the, the reorientation of mankind from the mechanism of nature to this idea that it is the end of nature to step outside that mechanism. You, you mentioned there, actually, you know, the importance of Kant's wider work that 40 years uh, before towards perpetual peace. But then also you've gestured towards um, several of the kind of key ideas that the book um, interrogates. And maybe we'll do the latter first in terms of some of the distinctions, I think, um, that you've got, you've got in there. Um, and I suppose, you know, two of them that kind of um, stood out to me were, were distinctions between kind of humanity broadly conceived as, you know, being, you know, kind of, I suppose, a good thing, you know, perfectible in terms of, you know, having, as you say, you know, kind of maybe a teleology and then human beings as being, you know, kind of everyday, imperfect, you know, annoying kind of characters who, who you know, get stuff wrong and make mistakes and things. And then a parallel distinction between things that are, you know, holy and, and unholy. And we'll come on to talk about, you know, ideas about um, God a bit, a bit later on. But, but I wonder if, if you could say a bit actually about, you know, those important distinctions that come from Kant's wider work, but, you know, are really crucial to understanding 
what the book is talking about. One of the things I make in the book is a, an important distinction in terms of how Kant deals with mankind. How do you, how does he cope with this problem of mankind not operating according to rational and moral ideas that are, as far as he's concerned, legislative, right? Why do we not uh, appear to be rational and moral? So what he does is he introduces this perspectival distinction. Because we can view ourselves either in terms of um, a collection of human beings, and he says, if we do this, we use our faculties of the understanding uh, and also what he calls technical practical reason and we can make a, a fairly comprehensive account of what human beings are or appear to be according to this way of thinking about mankind right so that's one perspective and that certainly explains the historical record and contemporary politics. Uh, and politics, as far as he's concerned, uh, as it will persist in the future until we reach the limits of that politics. And that's something he addresses in To War Perpetual Peace. He says eventually we'll get to the point where wars will become so destructive that we will be faced with a choice. We'll either go down the route of universal destruction or we will change the very foundations of our sense of ourselves, our political behavior, etc. But for the for the short to medium term, we're stuck within what he calls this mechanism of nature, which is understood primarily through one way of thinking about the world, which is dependent upon these faculties. But um, he would argue perhaps more fundamentally there's another perspective that we can have on mankind, which is the perspective of humanity. And he says, from this perspective, we don't look at the historical record, we don't look at um, how human beings appear to be in their relations to each other. We look at what reason says mankind ought to be according to reason and according to what he calls rational morality. And he says this is the more fundamental aspect of of what mankind ought to be and it's a question of orientation and reorientation how do we reorient human society from the competition of human beings towards the situation where a legislative rational morality informs how we live and that's the key task that he sets himself in his his uh, work, right? From the second critique and the groundwork for any future metaphysics of morals, all the way through to toward perpetual peace. And afterwards, he's trying to, if you like, affect this revolution in orientation of mankind. How can we change our fundamental uh, set of beliefs about ourselves. That comes through over and over again in the book. 
Um, I'm thinking about chapter three, you know, and there's a distinction between, you know, kind of uh, moral politicians and and practical men. And I think we'll come on uh, to to talk about that. I wonder, though, before that, could you situate that kind of set of distinctions um, in terms of Kant's wider work? You know, the second chapter deals with, you know, the sorts of um, texts, but also the kinds of themes from Kant that, you know, should be reasonably familiar to anyone um, who's interested in, in philosophy more more generally. So, you know, things like uh, critique of the power of judgment, questions about uh, beauty, the sublime, these kind of, you know, broad Kantian themes. Where do they kind of figure in, in, in framing um, the distinction you've outlined um, before we kind of turn to the more uh, sort of specific questions about politics and IR? Yeah, well, the, the issue for Kant is he's trying to, I think, restore a certain sense of stability to metaphysics and philosophy after Hume. Uh, and after the effect of, of what he calls the destructive nomads who, who burn the ground of the, the established, he's very concerned to sort of refound Western thought. And he does this in the in the first critique and the second critique. Uh, but oddly and interestingly, he doesn't just do it in the in the kind of major works. All his works tend to be consistent and consonant with uh, the critiques. So we have to kind of really get to grips with the critiques before we can understand what he's trying to accomplish in his political work. Uh, and I think of the three critiques, the one that sets the, the real agenda, apart from this kind of fundamental distinction between human beings and humanity, which is established in the second critique uh, and in the groundwork, is the third critique where he's thinking, well, okay, we basically have two ways of thinking about existence. Either existence is is a sort of meaningless mechanism that just repeats itself without any sort of purpose and human beings are part of this mechanism and we just accept that, uh, which is an appalling vista, if you like, for, for Kant, or we embrace the idea that nature is purposive. And if nature is purposive, then we can start thinking about it by analogy with art. Right? So that um, the, the, the universe and man's place within that universe is understandable in terms of, of a sort of artistic product and with the divine being the artist and the human being uh, and mankind in, in, uh, and humanity and the transition from human beings to humanity, or at least the approximation thereof, uh, it would be the artistic product then, right? So the third critique sets the agenda for uh, toward perpetual peace because it really gets to grips in a, in a systematic way with the idea of teleology, the idea that there is uh, an end to nature, that it's not just a purpose of purposeless, chance-driven uh, set of contingencies without meaning. Right? This idea of meaning, that existence has to have some kind of meaning, uh, and human existence has to be at the, the centre of this quest for meaning, really dominates Kant's writings from this point onwards. In the in the second and in the third critique, 
it's it's kind of present in a in a vague way in in his earlier works, and it's also present, funnily enough, in in one of his important early political works, which is the idea of universal history, right, which anticipates uh, some of the themes of of the third critique. So these these kind of projects are interpenetrating each other: the political project and the critical project. And um, sometimes people like to treat them differently, but I see them as part of a whole. Uh, and so this this third critique is so important because it says, okay, there has to be a purpose, or there, there ought to be a purpose, or we must think that there is a purpose, because if we don't believe there's a purpose, then we can't access what that purpose might be, if that makes sense. I mean, sense. The, the logical question that comes from this is, what does this mean for IR? Um, and, and one of the things you, you do in, in Chapter 3 is, is kind of formally return uh, to, to politics and IR by framing it as, as I guess, you know, kind of Kant's problem um, for politics and IR. And that actually might be a good moment to kind of return from our broad discussion of, I suppose, the kind of quest for meaning, the problem of uh, humans, humanity, and ideas about reason to the specific topic of politics and IR. So, yeah, what, what is the kind of, um, as, you, as you notice in the book, the problem? Well, the problem is, um, effectively, <laughs> it's, human It's beings, quite a nice problem. <laughs> the big one. Uh, there's about okay. 7, million pro- 7 billion problems. Uh, they, they all coalesce into and this is a, a big issue because right? in, in 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 the lectures on logic which were finally written in 1800 written down um he starts to say well yeah the, the three big questions of um of counter what can i know what ought i to do for what may i hope and in the lectures on logic he adds another what is math right and for him from say seventeen ninety onward, the question of man uh, and the question of human beings and and how they might be saved from themselves becomes a huge part of his writing like from from about seventeen eighty nine to seventeen ninety six seven when he starts to feel the effects of his mental decline uh, so how do you solve the problem of human beings? Well, funnily enough, what he does is he kind of combines the kind of pessimistic anthropology that he, he develops over time. Uh, and he says, well, okay, what happens if we, if we allow human beings their head, if you like, and we just say, all right, human beings, how are you going to act for the foreseeable future? And he says, well, what we find, we, we find all throughout history and all throughout our own experience that human beings are driven by what he calls in the idea of universal history, unsocial sociability, which is the simultaneous attraction and repulsion of human beings to each other. Uh, now, there's various psychological and natural drives that he identifies with this, as of esteem, or greed for power, etc. Uh, but he also says that human beings are rational uh, and that they are self-seeking and calculating. And he thinks about the future and how that might manifest itself over time. 
And what he says is, it's going to be pretty much the same as it is now, except the stakes will get higher and higher and higher. Uh, and also running in parallel, business will develop, commerce will develop, and rational self-interest plus moral, uh, morally legislating ideas will converge. Um, and it's kind of rational self-interest. People don't want to die. And people don't want to be poor. Uh, in a, this will be the kind of motor um, of of a sort of final crisis, whereby you might have a, a final war, which will either, as I said earlier, result in in two options: either human, either human beings put down the the weapons and develop some kind of modus operandi for dealing with each other, or they will, uh, as he says, find the perpetual peace of the graveyard, and that the species will die out, and without with it all idea of right. And so what he starts to do is think, well, okay, how do we get to a point where we can put the weapons down? And that's what the preliminary articles are all about. And so he wants to have a final peace where there's no reservation of any future cause for war, there's no secret clauses, there's no secret diplomacy. It's a final decision of the warring parties for peace. Uh, and he says part of the parcel of this is that we had to get rid of standing armies, we had to stop using credit to finance wars because that just leads to the ever-increasing capacity of war-making, um, we had to act in such a fashion as to um, make future peace possible. So if we are engaged in a, in a, in a war, not to use assassination, illegal means, etc., etc. So what he's trying to do is, is create a sort of legal framework for interaction uh, between states in the future. And this, is, I think, was why he's so appealing to contemporary liberal thinkers is because they think, oh, well, okay, here's Kant, and he's saying all these things about how we have access to a way of, of resolving war and creating peace. Um, um, up to a point, this is a, an interesting scenario because Kant is pointing towards what we can see happening over the last 200 years. We can see the um, the development of international law, we can see the development of international organizations. Um, but there's always something terrifying, Kant, and that's the possibility of reversion. That we might create a working peace system based on rational self interest. But there's always the threat that he associates with Moses Mendelssohn um, that. A society or civilization might start then to degenerate from the high point back into the state of war. So you wouldn't actually have achieved perpetual peace, you would have achieved a partial peace, a peace that's limited in space and time. What he wants to create is a peace that is not limited in, in, in space and time, but rather is, as he says, perpetual or eternal. Which sets up quite nicely the entrance of God 
in terms of both, you know, the, the twist, as it were, and what we've been talking about is a set of, you know, practical legalistic frameworks. But the book, you know, is called, uh, you know, the political uh, theology and obviously the kinds of, I suppose, modern legalistic IR frameworks and to an extent actually the way cosmopolitanism has been interpreted in many you know social theoretical settings really leaves out God and the theological but the rest of the book uh, I mean you know it's in the at the start of the book as well but the rest of the book is about bringing kind of God I suppose back in so you know the really obvious question is you know how does God come into this and why is you know this um, theological elements so crucial to understanding what what's actually going on in Kant's writings. Yes, very good. Now I should state at the outset that Kant never makes a claim that God exists. It's not about the existence of God. What he says is that if we want to access certain capacities for hope, uh, we then we have to believe. In other words, there may or may not be a God, but we are required to believe that God exists. Right? So we don't make an ontological claim that there is a God and God has a design for human beings and it, it basically the will of God will, will determine uh, the outcomes of, of human fate. Or destiny. What he's saying is, right, we have no way of knowing that God exists, but we have to believe. Right? So it's the absence of knowledge that requires faith. And that faith is rooted in Kant's fear of nature itself. Right? Because as I said earlier, nature can take you so far, but as he says in in the Toward perpetual peace, he says, well, nature is not a kind and loving entity. Nature has its own ends, which we can't know. It may not have any ends. This is not open to us to know. We can give ourselves some purpose and some meaning to our existence if we extend beyond what we know in terms of what science reveals to us towards the idea of salvific faith, right? That the true soteriology, the study of salvation, will not lead us to nature because nature doesn't really care about human beings. Human beings are simply a part of that mechanism. What we need is a whole different way of thinking about our relationships to each other and our relationship to uh, existence in general. And that leads us to questions of, well, and it's the ultimate question as far as he's concerned, it's why should I behave morally? Why should I behave ethically in any given, and certainly political circumstance? What's at stake, right? He says I'd have to be a fool to act according to rational morality if there were no God, if there were no afterlife, if I wasn't called to account uh, for my, if you like, political sins, then 
I'm, I'm, I might as well just accept the mechanism of nature and act according to its rules. Uh, so as far as he's concerned, that way of thinking would lead us to the abyss. And we would inevitably fall into destruction if we did not believe in purpose of nature. And if we're going to have purpose of nature, then we have to have something behind purpose of nature as a sort of architect or legislator. And we have to think about that in terms of both providence and God. And that's why he says that even though we can never know God exists, we must always assume that he does. Because it's the only way then that we can act as if there is a purpose to nature. And then political purpose, the conclusion of which is to be hoped in perpetual peace, is found through this idea of purpose of nature and that there is an author of nature. And that author has an eventual talos which mankind is capable uh, of reaching. And we have to then orient ourselves to this set of beliefs as opposed to what he sees as the kind of empty um, and ultimately destructive atheistic way of thinking about the world. As far as he's concerned, atheism is, is an absolute threat to any kind of effective political order because it undercuts the basis of society, of a rational society, because it leaves us solely within the ambit, if you like, of politics. There would be no escape from the mechanism of nature for mankind in that scenario. So even though, as I said earlier, he, he doesn't insist that there is a god, he says, if there, if there were to be a God, it would be, and if we were to believe in a God, it gives us access to a whole range of possibilities and ways of living that we would not have uh, via the atheistic denial of God. And there's a fascinating passage that I deal with the, the end of the book, where he says that atheists, even good atheists, will find themselves cast into the abyss of nature. Because uh, nature is indifferent to whether they are good as of and in themselves. And this is the defining aspect of nature, is its indifference. Whereas if we could believe that there was a, an entity that has created the universe and we are at the center of that creation, that gives us a, another way of orientation. And it's all about this idea of how we orient our political, social, rational, moral, ethical way of being in the world. Do we do it by reference to nature or do we do it by reference to providence? Obviously, the big question that comes from that reorientation away from um, atheism towards a more theological um, mode of kind of thinking about IR is what are the implications for our contemporary um, IR theorists then, you know, does, does this mean that, you know, much of, I guess, the kind of um, 
moment of going hand in hand with atheistic modernity and things like democracy or you know um, things like rational law-based rules-based approaches essentially need to be rewritten need to be you know um, thought again because one of the key founding texts is is much more theological than it's uh, you know kind of key proponents thought yeah well Let's put it this way. I think they're they're perfectly fine engaging in the cosmopolitan project that they are engaged in. It's a it's a fine project, but there are serious implications for how they go about it, right? Because what they haven't done is replaced the idea of God and providence with ideas of equivalent structural heft. If you like, they're, they they ignored the fact that. Providence and God and belief in the afterlife and all these theological and metaphysical ideas aren't just kind of addenda that you can ignore. They're actually at the very core of Kant's project. So if you're going to remove it or you're going to ignore it, then the question becomes, what are you going to replace it with? And this is a huge problem for um, contemporary Kantian cosmopolitans because for Kant, Kant is, if you like, forced into these positions because he's saying, well, how do I make the transition from how we appear to be uh, in, in political terms to how we ought to be in moral terms? And he says, well, we can't do it by reference to ourselves. We can't do it by reference to uh, human nature because human nature produces these things on a consistent basis. Therefore, only belief can um, give us the capacity to move from how we are or appear to be to how we ought to be. Now, if you don't have uh, belief, you're still stuck with this problem of, well, how do I get from is to ought? So if you look at someone like Thomas Poggy, Thomas Poggy is very good at identifying the problem of contemporary global politics. Right. He's, he's very clear that Western powers are self-seeking. They create the international structure uh, of society uh, according to their own interests. They are ruthless in the pursuit of those interests. And the consequence is the impoverishment and structural inequality that we see in, in terms of the distribution of resources in terms of disease, in terms of exploitation, etc. So he outlines the problem. He also outlines a solution of, of um, human rights within a cosmopolitan and very, in some respects, Kantian uh, frameworks for dealing with these problems. But what he can't do is say, well, okay, here's how we get from point A to point B, because he obviously doesn't take the metaphysics seriously. Someone who comes to Kant through John Rawls and reads uh, Kant in those those terms, Rawls is a bit uh, embarrassed by the Kantian metaphysics, and he wants to just take the rules of of Kant, if you like, that he finds in in the Secutique and and particularly in the groundwork, and say, well, let's just look at these and ignore this metaphysical context. Fine. Uh, but 
if you're going to do that, then you also need to come up with something that can bridge that gap. And I think the big problem that my book poses to people like Poggy and Thomas Bites and others is, well, okay, you've identified the problem. You've identified a solution. How do we get from problem to solution? And this is the advantage of Kant over contemporary Kantians and and contemporary cosmopolitans. He has at least given a solution. Now, those of us who who are less convinced by uh, theological and metaphysical commitments that Kant embraces as, as the way out, if you like, or the solution to that process of moving from point A to point B, start to see the problem then in, in wider terms, in terms of, well, how do we think about international ethics and how do we think about international politics uh, in a non-Kantian way? But it also poses the question to the Kantians uh, and says, well, okay, over to you guys. How are you going to, to solve this, this real problem of that almost incommensurability between your identification of the problem and the solution? But the solution doesn't seem to lie in human beings in the way that seems to be almost understood uh, by people like Poggy. And I think that's a a big problem in terms of understanding what is possible and achievable uh, in any given global political context. The book has been really well received. Um, you know, it's had a couple of awards. In terms of kind of answering that big question of, so what do we do? Is that going to be your next project? Or given the kind of, you know, positive reception of the book, is it a question of you've had quite enough of cans and now something completely different? I came to the project because I was also interested in what's called realist ethics in international relations. And I was thinking, why aren't realist ethics more significant in terms of how we think about international ethics and, and morality? And I thought, well, what's out there? What, what's preventing uh, the emergence of this way of thinking about ethics? And I noticed that Kant was everywhere. Kant really does dominate how we think about the ethical sphere in, in, and moral sphere in international relations. 90% of, of the discussions revolve around uh, different variants of, of Kantian thought, maybe about 75%. But certainly a huge amount of, of the discussion re- revolves around Kant and, and the Kantian legacy. And I thought, well, I'm really going to have to deal with this Kant chat properly. Uh, which is what then provoked me to go back and, and kind of work on these suspicions and, and kind of instincts that there was something peculiar about these invocations of providence. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll, I'll investigate. And the more I investigated, the more I thought, well, that's, this is a very interesting project. I really have to deal with this in order to then say, okay, well, this is maybe why realist ethics needs to be looked at because it offers a different set of alternatives. So what I'm doing next is a two-book project on realist ethics. So one set of realist ethics, um, sort of, the, I, I, I locate a constellation around the works of E.H. Carr, who is an atheist, right? He doesn't 
depend upon uh, belief in God for his uh, ways of thinking about ethics. Right? So he, he embraces people like Marx, he embraces people like Spinoza, Machiavelli, uh, and he's trying to work out a specifically political ethics. Right? What is possible within the political sphere in terms of ethical judgment and making decisions that have ethical implications. So it's a, it's a very different way of thinking about um, moral possibility within the political sphere than Kant. And then after that, I'm going to do a book on Morgenthau. Morgenthau is somewhere between Carr and, and Kant, and he's much more interested in thinking about how to assess political behavior from a point outside politics informed by the moral law. Now, his idea of the moral law has certain similarities with Kant, but there's a lot of Aristotle, there's a lot of Weber, there's a lot of other kind of ways of thinking about ethics uh, entailed in how Morgenthau wants to think about that relationship between politics and morality. And I think the advantage of, of doing this book first is that I know now how Kant conceives of politics as something that should, as he says in, in Toward Perpetual Peace, bend the knee toward morality. Uh, and this is the distinction between the moral politician and the political moralist. A moral politician will always make the moral law number one. But from a realist ethics point of view, that isn't the nature of politics itself. So I think we probably are better off trying to work out what is ethically possible within the political. So that's one aspect of where I'm going next with the ethical stuff. I'm also thinking of developing work along um, a book on David Hume, because I think a lot of the questions, the political questions, that Kant is trying to develop answers to revolve around his fear of Hume. And the big question for international relations and politics is, has Kant adequately answered the threat or challenge posed by Hume and the passions? Uh, and a lot of our kind of decision-making and, and, and theorization of politics has to really address this question, right? And it's something that Morgenthau raises in a great book from the 1940s called Scientific Man versus Power Politics. He says, the theorization of international politics has proceeded almost from the basis that David Hume never existed. So that challenge of Hume, that challenge of the Humean way of thinking, I think has to be restored to uh, our way of thinking about international relations today. Right? That perhaps a Kant has obscured, Kant and the Kantian legacy has obscured another legacy that is very important to how we think about international relations, but which has only ever had a subterranean and a submerged and obscured uh, articulation, and that's the, the Humean way of thinking about the world. So first I'll deal with the realist stuff and then I'll do deal with the Hume stuff. So, but the, the Kant element is key to both projects. 
Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. David O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to Sean Malloy about Kant's international relations, the political theology of perpetual peace. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.